You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Welcome back, Dr. Smith. Good to have you with us. Good to be with you all. Good to have everybody here for August 15th, which is the Solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, falling on a Sunday this year. So we kind of like throw off all other things and, and enter into the festal cycle here with the reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 11, which is unusual for us, usually going back to the Old Testament for our, our first reading. But but here we're, we're going to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. If you're going to take notes here, write these down. Revelation, chapter 11, verse 19. And then it picks it up again, chapter 12, verse 1 through 6, and verse 10. So a little piece together here to try to give us a snapshot of this mystery of the assumption. The, the responsorial psalm is Psalm 45, verse 10 and following. The gospel, Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 56. And the epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 through 27. So let's jump right in here to the book of Revelation chapter 11. Again, it's, it's a little piece together here, a little hard to read on your end in your Bibles. You can always pick the reading up from the uh, USCCB uh, website and that kind of fits it together there. And, and doctor, I'm going to go ahead and read this. I'm going to ask you why, you know, just as a reminder, why it is that the church in her liturgical tradition oftentimes does this. And that is slices up the text a little bit and picks, uh, picks particular verses, because coming at this from the outside as, say, a non-Catholic might look like, oh, look what they're dancing around, making stuff up, and so forth, which isn't the case. So we want to make sure we're all on the same page regarding this. So we're going to start with the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 19, and then pick, pick it up at chapter 12, verse 1 through 6, and verse 10. God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant could be seen in the temple. A great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child and wailed aloud in pain. She labored to give birth. Then another sign appeared in the sky. It was a huge red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven diadems. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in the sky and hurled them down to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman about to give birth, to devour her child when she gave birth. She gave birth to a son, a male child, destined to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. The woman herself fled into the desert where she had a place prepared by God. Then I heard a loud voice in the heavens say, Now have salvation and power come, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his anointed one. 
Dr. Smith, there's, there's, uh, there's so much here you can do. Uh, really, this because of the way the piece it together, it's almost the whole book of Revelation in some sense. And there's yeah, so right. much background here. So help us dig into this text a bit. Sure. So first, your question about the splitting up of the verses. So if we go back in our Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 11, what they've really done is just taken like a paring knife and they've cut off the end of verse 19, which you can see is in a certain way a long verse. It almost looks like it should be, you know, usually most verses are about a sentence or a sentence and a half. Here we have uh, two full sentences. And I think what they're really trying to do is just keep the focus on this queenly image. Because if you take off uh, the second part, it's the different kind of imagery of kind of God's power over nature, the lightning and the thunder, the earthquakes. So it keeps it focused on that arc of the covenant and so I think that the thing to see here, Father, is there's a connection between this image of the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 11 at the very end there, and then this kind of queenly image of the woman clothed with the sun. And obviously, the church in her wisdom understands the, the connection between these two. And we'll talk more about this as we go along, because later in Luke's gospel, I'll point out some interesting connections, believe it or not, between what Luke has to say about the visitation of Mary in her um, earthly life, so moving away from this kind of heavenly scene into her earthly life, and some connections, believe it or not, to David. We'll get to that a little bit later. Um, a few helps for reading Revelation. Now, Revelation scares too many Catholics and it ought not. That really is because of mistreatments by various uh, Christian preachers, usually fundamentalists. Often they're promoting rapture theology or end times eschatology. But we can set all that aside and just take the book at face value. It's a beautiful book of liturgy. It really is a quite a gloriously beautiful book. And yes, there are judgments throughout the book with the various trumpets and bowls and the seals and all of that stuff. But even uh, as I say this to my seminarians, even when you look at like the first set of judgments, which are seals, there are seven seals and then there are seven trumpets and then seven bowls. So 21 or three sets of seven. Between the sixth and the seventh seal, there's a kind of an intermission from all these judgments and God opens up the heavens to pour out his mercy. And this is very important to see that even in the right judgment that God is, you know, you might say finally bringing upon the earth in this kind of final cosmological scene, there is mercy to be had. The other thing to say about Revelation is let's not forget this is a Christian epistle. You go, well, this doesn't look a lot like Ephesians. It may not, but it is. If you go back to Revelation chapter two and three, you can see those seven churches, which some in the Institute will have perhaps visited, perhaps, and know that there is a kind of a logic to those seven. They're all related to one another geographically. Some say there's a potentially a postal route, which the letter traveled on. Some say no. But in any case, they're all within a short distance, let's say about 50 miles of one another in what's today Western Turkey. And this would have been where John and also the Blessed Virgin Mary spent the latter part of their days. As we know, John was uh, moved to Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor or here in Turkey today in the latter years of his life and also the Blessed Virgin Mary. There are some traditions that Mary was assumed here in Ephesus. There are other traditions that say elsewhere, for example, in Jerusalem. But we do know wherever that happened, that what it really signifies for the Christian disciple is our future hope. You know, I was talking to a Christian once, non-Catholic father, who was very troubled that in a few of the Marian prayers, Mary is called our hope. The Stella Maris is an example. You marry our hope. He said, wait a minute, stop you right there. He's like, Jesus is our hope. But I had to kind of explain to him what it means that Mary is our hope, that it's not that she's part of the Godhead, but because of her, her pureness, her, her pure devotion to God, her yes to God, uh, unmitigated response to God and her sinlessness, 
she is our hope for what we as human beings and as the church hope to aspire to reach, which is perfection and salvation. So this scene is a really wonderful scene, which ought to really inspire us on this Feast of the Assumption to have devotion to the Virgin Mary and also recognize where she is headed, we also desire and hope to go. You know, we speak of, or I say St. Paul speaks of, of Jesus as the first fruits, and then we can also then understand uh, our incorporation into him and how Mary standing with, say, within Christ, right, having, having uh, been totally united to him, then is also seen in those terms of the forerunner for all of us. But let's take a look here, doctor, a little bit closer into the text. There are interesting, strange images, challenging images, might be difficult to understand. And the, the first one there is that John sees the Ark of the Covenant could be seen in the temple, and then begins to move to this image of the woman. And it, it, it seems that there's a connection in John's writing here between the Ark and this woman. And, and maybe you help us understand that. Yeah, no, indeed. So first of all, uh, we meet this beautiful vessel, the Ark of the Covenant, which of course holds the tablets. We're now we're back really in the book of Exodus. And you want to do a really interesting study, read the book of Exodus and read Revelation because you can almost read them in parallel. So this is picking up the language from Exodus 25 through 40, where both Moses and Aaron are given all those beautiful but very detailed instructions for the vestments and for the tabernacle and indeed for this great and spectacular image. And really what it, it tells us then is the connection between this golden vessel, right, uh, which goes disappearing in salvation history for, you know, it's, it's lost after the, the Babylonian captivity, it just, it's, it's gone, right? And that's kind of interesting too, that that disappears. Now it re resurfaces here in this heavenly scene. And then we move right into this image of the woman who's clothed with the sun. So there is clearly a connection. And some would say, well, these are two different chapters, right? You have chapter 11. And, but let's remember that the chapter and verses of the scriptures are, are really artificial, as many will know, these are not part of the letters, not part of the Gospels originally. So when John wrote this in the Greek, obviously, there's no break between this image of the Ark of the Covenant right there at the last paragraph and then the new paragraph in chapter 12. Now, this obviously, this pregnancy motif is also interesting. She's in birth pangs. She's ready to give birth. And then you have this other sign. So it's, a, it's an image of hope that certainly represents, uh, in some sense, individually, the Blessed Virgin Mary. But the church is quick to point out, even in the catechism, that also corporately, it's she, this woman signifies the church. It's kind of a, a both and in the sense that we get the image of Mary for sure, because she's going to give birth to a son. Uh, he's going to rule. That's certainly an image of the mother of the Messiah. But the church has also said through the ages that this also signifies the, the church who is in battle with darkness and battle with Satan. And then we read what seems to be a kind of a portent about the fall of the angels. You get that in verse four, where it says the, the, the tale of this red dragon. And we think of the serpent, of course, of Genesis chapter three, that entices the first woman who's a type of Mary, Eve. And he takes a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to the earth. And then, of course, is this great confrontation between the woman and the dragon. And that also ought to take us back to Genesis. Maybe we can read just for a moment, Genesis 3.15 to remind ourselves of the scene between that first woman, if we call Mary in some sense the last woman, as it were, the first woman Eve in Genesis 3, right after the temptation and the fall, um, we see that the Lord God says, I will put enmity, which is an older word we don't really use much in English anymore, but it means strife or war or battle. 
enmity between you and the woman, he says to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. And then this line, which the church identifies as the Proto-Evangelion or first gospel, which says he shall, uh, really it's a, a bad translation there in most, most of the ones I found, it's really more crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. They're not the same verbs. So the verb that's used in uh, the first line there, he shall bruise is really much more of a, a triumphing, a, a vindicating blow, a death blow, crushing your head and you shall strike or bruise his heel. Meaning it's not even gonna be any contest, right? There's going to come a day where God will bring judgment upon this disobedient creature of his, the serpent. But here cast forward in the book of Revelation is really the dragon. Yeah, so much here. So there's a lot there's a lot here but I, i'm really interested in, in hearing what you have to say with the connection with the gospel reading that we have coming up of course the responsorial psalm coming to us from responsorial psalm 45 verse 10 and following is is easily applicable to the mother of god the queen mm -hmm. stands at your right hand arrayed in gold the queen takes her place at your right hand in gold of ophir hear o daughter and see turn your ear forget your people and your father's house so shall the king desire your beauty, for he is your Lord, and so forth. Following, it's easily applicable here to the mother of God, but but in its original context, doctor, how would the uh, the Old Testament church understood this psalm? Yeah, so we have this royal imagery that runs through the psalms, and much of it is applied to the kings like David or later King Solomon, but there's also this motif that runs through the Old Testament. I want to take you back just for a moment to one verse in Jeremiah 13. Uh, because one of the motifs in the Old Testament is the treatment of the queen mother. This is seen in a number of different texts in the books of Kings, and it kind of comes in quickly, and you can sort of miss it if you don't know what you're looking for, but it's sort of in the background there. But here's a verse where we see it in uh, Jeremiah 13, verse 18. Notice it's not going to be the queen and his wife, because often the, the, a king may have had more than one wife, but he only had one mother. So it says, say to the king and the queen mother. In Hebrew, the term is Gibora, uh, G-I-B-B-O-R-A-H, Gibora. And uh, say to the king and queen mother, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. So it's a beautiful scene, kind of a enthronement scene, right? Talking about the, the king, but not the king's wife, but the queen mother. And so the church in her wisdom, uh, St. Maximus of Turin and a number of other saints would read these passages in the Old Testament and apply them forward with the book of Revelation to the Blessed Virgin Mary. I have just one of those uh, for us to read just a little bit later. We'll bring it in when we're looking at the Gospel of Luke, and it's pretty mind-blowing to make the connection between the Old Testament and the Blessed Virgin Mary. Well, let's take a look at this now. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 56. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 56. A very interesting correlation is the church's drawing between the visitation and the assumption of the mother of God here. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 56. Mary set out and traveled to the hill country in haste to a town of Judah, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the infant leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, cried out in a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how does this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For at the moment the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the infant in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed are you who believed, 
that what was spoken to you by the Lord would be fulfilled. And Mary said, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The almighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm and has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. Doctor, many listening to the gospel passage, they might be confused, uh, uncertain, maybe uh, are unaware of uh, why it is that there's not a gospel proclamation about the assumption. But here we go back to the story of the visitation. But you're going to help us bring these beautiful mysteries together. Indeed. You know, I I go back and forth. What is my favorite gospel? Of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are my favorites. But in some ways, one of the things I really love about Luke is he's such the historian. You know, we know that St. Luke was not traveling with the 12. He was not part of the company of the 12. He was not there at the baptism and all these other great scenes of transfiguration. He came along later. He's a later Christian. And his ministry, uh, largely to Gentile Christians, is connected to that of St. Paul. We know from various letters of Paul, in many places, he talked about Luke, the physician, the so-called we passages that are in the book of Acts, where suddenly the voice goes from I to we, seems to indicate that Luke is including himself in those journeys. We, we believe he went on several, at least, of those missionary journeys. And so he's got that connection with St. Paul. But he also, in Luke chapter 1, in his prologue, tells us that he was not interested in secondhand knowledge, but in firsthand reports from living eyewitnesses. This has been greatly studied by a scholar whose name is Richard Balkum. Many others would, would corroborate the fact that, that Lucas was a first-grade historian who likely took journals or notes and went to the various communities. People often ask me, you know, Dr. Smith, do you think Luke sat down and interviewed Mary? And we don't really have any information to say yes or no. So I'm sort of agnostic on that point. But one thing I can tell you is if he didn't talk to Mary, he certainly would have talked to people that knew her. And here's why. If you look in the infancy narratives where Luke several times says, Mary treasured or pondered these things in her heart. A line like that should really strike us. And he actually says that uh, twice, Luke says that in Luke chapter two. How did he get that information? All right, it's a good question. How did he know that? I mean, if it's interior disposition, Mary's praying, because someone he talked to would have said something like, you know, well, what was she like? You know, and maybe it came up as a pattern. You know, she's really quiet, but she was praying all the time about these things. So that ends up in his gospel as a really interesting little insight. But let's get into the connection between Revelation and this gospel. So this is one of the most beautiful passages because it also contains the great Magnificat. And it does seem like good old St. Luke is trying to present the infancy narrative of Luke chapter one and two here, following the books of Samuel. Here's what I mean. Mary's prayer, the Magnificat, many have attested is really built off of or mirrors the prayer of that great and holy woman, Hannah, who's also a woman who's barren, who doesn't have children. She's the mother, of course, of the great prophet and priest Samuel. And you can read her prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where we first meet the young, uh, the, the, uh, well, the young Samuel, but his mother, and then his uh, sort of miraculous birth. It's not a virgin birth, but it's a miraculous birth. So there's a great connection there. But I want to take you into 2 Samuel and show you a couple of connections, as I promised, between 
King David and Mary, which seems like a strange connection, but once you see it, it's hard not to see it. So we go back to 2 Samuel, we're in the story of David becoming king. The young king in chapter 5, he's crowned king over all of Israel, he's anointed, he defeats the Philistines, and then after defeating the Philistines, he brings the ark to Jerusalem. I want to show you a couple of different connections, Father, between our passage for this Sunday and 2 Samuel chapter 6. So if you read verse 1 and 2, it says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned upon the cherubim. And they carried the ark off on a new cart and brought it to the house of Abinadab, uh, which was on the hill, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, okay, what we, and then the next verse, verse five tells us, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating with this ark before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and signets and cymbals. And then it mentions the, the very place where they're at. Okay, so if you actually go through this chapter and you read all the details, we see at least four or five connections between the ark and Mary, and I'll quickly point these out. First is the geographic location. Where this is taking place is the hill country of Judea. And that's exactly where Ein Karam, the place today that's visited where the Church of the Visitation is. Now, I'm not saying it's in the exact specific location, but it's sort of close enough to remind us that something very significant happened here with David carrying the ark. Secondly is the rejoicing. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 15, it says, with shouting and sound of the horn, uh, David is wearing the linen ephod and in verse 14 actually dances before the Lord. And that's very similar to the babe in Elizabeth's womb that's dancing. It's the same word in the Greek, in fact, the leaping, to leaping, what an animal does is leaping. We also have the humility of the recipient in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel verse 9. David was afraid and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? That's very similar, right? to what we read of Elizabeth. And so what we see, I think, happening here is a kind of typology, but also probably a very deliberate and intentional uh, correlation by St. Luke. He wants us to see, and what this is what I'm driving at, that just as this beautiful vessel right, was housing the law of Moses that David brought to Jerusalem in a similar way, Mary, Mary herself, the human vessel chosen by God is the one who is this new Ark of the Covenant, the new vessel which holds the new law, which holds Jesus himself. Three months of time is also mentioned in verse 11, where it says, which I just read, uh, he's there for three months, remain there. And then also that's the same amount of time of Mary's visit in Luke's gospel. And then ultimately both the Ark and Mary are bound for Jerusalem. That comes up in verse 12, where it mentions that the Ark is destined for Jerusalem. And also uh, we see that in at the end of Luke's infancy narrative, Luke 2, 21 to 22, the next chapter. So we have geographic location. We got the rejoicing. We've got the humility of the recipients. We've got the length of time and the ultimate destination of Jerusalem. Hard to say those are coincidence when you have five of those. And so this is a beautiful way that St. Luke has tried to take this Old Testament story and then bring it forward into the life of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the young Lord Jesus. It's beautiful. Of course, the church, uh, you know, receiving the, this beautiful mystery of the story of the visitation, 
and tying it for us to the, the assumption is very beautiful with the ascent of the ark to Jerusalem, which is now the heavenly Jerusalem to which Mary ascends. Before we leave your Old Testament passage here, Doctor, is encourage people to go back to First Samuel chapter two that you mentioned very quickly, because there's a it, it's so beautiful in the feast of the visitation and the Magnificat. This declaration that Mary makes, of course, the prophetess Hannah is the patron saint of Mary's mother, Anna. It's the same name, and uh, and so I I always think I mean I don't have you know perfect evidence of this, but imagine that that the the mother of God's mother Anna would have had a great devotion to this great prophetess of the Old Testament and taught Mary about her on her knee and if you read this in chapter 2 verse 1 in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 1 Hannah also prayed and said my heart exalts in the Lord my strength is exalted in the Lord my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. He go, she goes on, and there's so many similarities between this prayer of Hannah and the prayer of the mother of God, that it seems to me that Mary has internalized the prayer of Hannah such that when this moment of, of salvation comes to her, um, is, she opens up and prays as, as any of us would in, in terms and in, in language which she knew, but she knew them so well that it weren't memorized word for word, but in prayer, they'd become hers. Oh, I'm excited. No, it's true. And I think, you know, Luke does this with a lot of the characters in this gospel. They really are the embodiment of all the Old Testament faithful. You see Zachariah and Elizabeth are kind of like a new Abraham and Sarah. It's very intentional. He's showing us with great joy the way salvation history has come to its climax. I want to say one last thing, if I could, just a shout out to all the holy women in the church today, whether religious, married, because, you know, both Hannah and Mary, one of the qualities, great qualities they have is this heroic virtue of courage. And, you know, it's in many different ages of the church, and even in our own age, it's all, it's all very often the holy women who are not passive. Hannah was not passive and Mary. You can read their songs and see they have a warrior spirit. They are trusting, they're humble, but they are strong women. Mm-hmm. And I want to give a shout out to all the women who are listening to this. We thank you and, and God will bless you on this feast day for your courage, for your witness, and for your holiness. Amen, doctor. We turn to the epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 through 27, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 through 27. And I, I, I don't want to forget also, by the way, if anyone wants to dive a little deeper into both the, this feast of the, of the assumption and this tying together of the visitation of the mother of God to her cousin Elizabeth, we have talks on the Institute website on both of these mysteries, assumed into heaven and then the visitation, both of them. So um, you can take a look at those and do those studies in preparation for this beautiful feast day. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse, starting with verse 20, which brings us full circle to what we were saying earlier, doctor. Brothers and sisters, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through man, the resurrection of the dead came also through man. For just as in Adam all die, so too in Christ shall all be brought to life, but each one in proper order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he stands over the kingdom of his God and Father, when he has destroyed every sovereignty and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has subjected everything 
under his feet. Doctor, I'm not sure we, we have to say much except, I, I, I mean, from my perspective, just to remember that the first fruits are exactly that. The first yeah. fruits re, is, is, it tells us that there is a harvest coming. And Jesus is the beginning of the revelation of what God wants for all of us embodied in, uh, in very much so in Mary and her assumption into heaven. I'll just say one thing, and I'm with you. I, what I love about this passage, the church and her wisdom places this here, is it reminds us that ultimately everything that's true about Mary, everything that's true about Mary points to the Son. And I can't say it better than what you just said. And St. Paul here reminds us that we, this is the hope for all of us when we look at the Blessed Virgin Mary, right? That her assumption into heaven points to what our future hope is. It's not building a kingdom here on earth. It's not having a long and healthy life and a huge 401k or all those other things that people may want. It may be good things. It's ultimately our, our ultimate hope is in heaven to be awaiting the Lord Jesus Christ and the Blessed Virgin Mary. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.